My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Eugipius. Um, he is a very prolific recent, I think, I don't know, I'm probably not pronouncing this right. You can correct me in a second, but uh, he's a, um, a, a recently prolific, a recently kind of exploding poster on, uh, on Twitter. Uh, his beat is uh, the coronavirus and its discontents and what that implies for um, the way we view science, the way we view politics, uh, and the way we view our elites. Um, and he is one of my favorite recent posters. Um, and I wanted to have him on to, to kind of dig a bit into his, um, yeah, into, you know, what, what, what makes him tick and what, what makes, what made him be attracted to this, uh, to this subject. So welcome, uh, welcome Eugipius, Eugipius. How, how do I pronounce this? Eugipius is, is also fine. Uh, Eugipius would be sort of a more, German pronunciation, but yeah, Eugipius is fine. Americans say Eugipius. Okay, perfect, perfect. So, um, Eugipius, um, what what made you? What was the kind of the first moment that you know you realized that coronavirus is going to be a thing? It is interesting, and what attracted you personally to um, uncover some some more hidden elements to to this unfolding catastrophe? So, so I was very much a pro-containment and convinced by by lockdowns early on. Uh, so March, I was, I was sick with Corona personally very early. Uh, one of the very earliest uh, clusters from each group related to the Netherlands from Austria. So I was very sick. I was lucky I did not end up in the news or anything. I was very sick early on. And so I sort of it influences your psychology about the disease, and you think you have some kind of privileged knowledge of it, of course, because you've experienced it. At a time, and I thought uh, so. I took containment very seriously. Early, and I was an alarmist. No readers didn't I didn't influence anything. I, I need to stop you there for a second. I think your your um, volume is dipping in and out, so it's it's getting it's, it's coming in loud, then it's coming in, you know less less so. so Sorry, is, is this better? Is this better? Um, it improve it? Yeah, I, th I think so. Let's just try this for a bit, and I'll I'll tell you if it if it works. Sorry, I'll, I'll try to try a bit. So, so I was sick very early, and I felt I had a privileged knowledge of the virus uh, because I had experienced it uh, personally at a time when very few people had. And uh, so, so I was uh, I was very poor containment in March and April, uh, but I also did not really pay attention to the news or any any uh, any information about it. You know, I I uh, was very low information on the Corona front uh, early on, and. And then I sort of I sort of forgot about it through May, and it just occurred to me that in Germany they wouldn't they wouldn't let it go. Right? There was there weren't any cases anymore. Almost nobody was sick. Uh, June, July, and they kept the ball in the air with the constant testing and the constant articles. And it struck me that something was really wrong with this. And when cases began to 
when infections began to start again in in September and October, it became very obvious very soon that uh, the containment measures weren't doing anything. They weren't they weren't behaving as advertised, and they weren't having any effect on. Uh, they weren't having obvious effects on infections, and so I, that's how I became interested in 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 uh, the, the pandemic. It seemed there were many many angles to what was happening that weren't really uh, weren't really discussed uh, in in mainstream media sources, and at the same time, a lot of disease surveillance data was being released by our our health bureaucracies, by the Robert Koch Institute, and so forth. Of, full of information that, that just every day what you read in the Süddeutsche Zeitung written in major papers and so forth and I thought it's very interesting there's a lot of scope here to investigate this phenomenon as an ordinary person and uh, that's how I became interested. Yeah so um, you know without you know revealing any information about your background you you do have um, kind of a, a, a career or an interest in a parallel discipline. I think you're, you're very obviously as someone who's very stats oriented, you know, your way around a data set, uh, this stuff is not foreign to you. So, uh, is this kind of the reason that you felt you, it, it was accessible to you to actually dig into the data and see what it actually, or, or how you would interpret it? Well, so I, I'm, I'm, I, it's probably best to say I'm kind of like an archaeologist in real life. Uh, so I'm an academic. Uh, so I do a little bit of data, but you know, not very complicated. You know, I'm not a mathematician or anything like that. Uh, so what really happens is, uh, it wasn't any expertise I had that I can bring to this. I really, I was just enforced idleness. There was a period of after September, October. You know, I'm, I'm employed by, you know, the government of Germany. I'm technically a bureaucrat. You weren't allowed to go to the office or to work for months and months and months. And so there's oceans of time and enforced idleness, nothing to do. This is separate from the lockdowns. Not a lot of people know, but there are efforts within the bureaucracy in Bavaria to keep bureaucrats out of the office because no one wants to work anymore, right? And, uh, and so so you weren't allowed to work, and that's my whole life, you know? And so I had to sit at home all day, and I just started reading hundreds of articles. I read several virology textbooks and uh, to understand more about the virus. So I, the, the knowledge itself is not, one must understand this field isn't very complicated. In fact, you know, there's, to know a little bit of high school genetics maybe or something, stuff you learn in gymnasium, but there's not, it's not crazy, right? Uh, it's not crazy complicated. Most of the research happens at a very unsophisticated level, you know, and so most people, reasonably intelligent people with limited background knowledge who read a textbook can find their way around the literature and make their, form their own conclusions, you know. So that's, that's, that's my, my own background. It's not, not deeply relevant. Okay. Yeah. Well, th that makes sense. I mean, um, a, a lot of people from kind of our, our corner of the internet were very early on COVID uh, and they were very right looking back on, you know, all of the stages that we went through. Uh, they're probably more right than, than many of the so-called experts. Um, so I'm definitely not someone to, <laughs> to, to say that, you know, it's a, it's a problem that you're not coming from, um, you know, whatever background of expertise. Actually, it might just be an advantage because you can kind of look at it a bit more holistically and uh, yeah, have a bit of a detachment from, um, I don't know, whatever status uh, implications uh, any finding would have on your personal career or, or you know, you being also a, an anonymous uh, account. So I think, uh, you know, that's, that's definitely a plus. Um, so I, I guess, you know, at, at this point, you having dug into the data deeply, um, do you have a feeling about a, a plausible, you know, this explanation about the origins of this? Because there's 
all sorts of uh, ideas about where this come came from and um do you partial to any any of the uh, available explanations of course i, I think uh from the beginning, I was fairly convinced that it was, of course, a product of gain-of-function research uh, undertaken at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in Wuhan and uh, accidentally perhaps released. I was very reluctant to talk too much about this angle because I thought, I suspect that part of the elite panic behind containment and lockdowns is sort of an informal, unacknowledged knowledge that exists among intellectual elites, the intelligentsia, that this this is a lab-enhanced virus, and that's that's part of why they reacted in the insane way that they did, uh, which they would never have done if it were influenza or something like that, right? Uh, so that's a big part of it. And uh, so I thought if one shouldn't talk too much about the lab angle because it just feed this, this, this lockdown insanity. But, you know, much more information has come out. Uh, it's, it's very clear uh, that uh, there's this whole pandemic industry uh, that has grown up since the 1980s surrounding planning for pandemics and biowarfare and all of this stuff. And a big part of this research is this gain-of-function stuff that they're doing. A small group of researchers, not very many, are doing. And it's clearly uh, where the virus came from. It's fairly obvious uh, the virus was developed by gain-of-function virologists connected with the EcoHealth Alliance and, and the Wuhan Institute. And then Probably accidentally released. So you know the only the only good precedent we have is the anthrax attacks in two thousand one for a similar event, and that was intentional sabotage. And I'm fairly convinced that that's what happened there. So one shouldn't rule out sabotage in this case. It, it could have been by, released on purpose by a disgruntled researcher or someone to discredit the discredit the uh, how do you say the, the um this line of research, right? So that's also possible. Mm-hmm. So at this point, um, the idea that it, it jumped from um, you know a, a zoonotic version of the of the virus is not uh, not plausible anymore. I don't, I don't think this was ever very plausible because it's uh, it, the uh, of the firm cleavage sites. So the 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 spike protein of of the virus has is optimized to infect human cells and uh, bats. Bats, it's, you know, the closest relatives of bats is ultimately originated in bats, but bats don't, cellular anatomy is such that they don't, they don't take advantage of fern cleavage sites. So the, the virus is obviously optimized to infect animals that aren't bats and we are the prime candidate, right? It's, it's got to be us. So it's, it's clear that it's fairly obvious the virus has features that suggest it's been adjusted in the laboratory, right? Mm-hmm. Your your volume is is going out again a little bit, just in, in case if there's anything you can do. Close, I sit to the microphone. Sorry, I don't really do interviews, so. No worries, no worries. I. It took me forever to learn not to to bounce everywhere because yeah, my my sound is is always a bit questionable. So I'm I'm trying my best here as well. So I I know how it is. Um. Okay. Um. Yeah. I think. I think that's uh, that's uh, definitely um, you know <laughs> a conspiratorial. It used to be a conspiratorial uh, idea, and now it is. I think it's starting to be quite quite the mainstream. You know, I think what was it in the it was in the New York Times. So I guess it's been blessed by the by the powers that be. Yes, so Nicholas uh, Wade was up for a long time the New York Times science reporter, I believe, and and he had a long medium essay where he 
laid out everything that people had said over months for why this probably came from a laboratory and then it seems to have sort of broken uh what was an uneasy attempt to uh, portray the virus as a natural phenomenon and and since then it's sort of quietly acknowledged everywhere that, that this is a, a lab enhanced virus what's very interesting is that that has had no that has had no political fallout right nothing has changed uh, our approach to the virologists responsible for this hasn't hasn't changed are they still regarded as authorities it's very curious and there's been no indictments uh no grand grand juries nothing no, no attempts to investigate i think it's very interesting yeah yeah exactly that was my my next question about this uh you know if it is a lab leak like what what should the fallout be? I mean, I think this is kind of a, a, a permanent feature in a way of our um, expert class. Uh, you know, you, ha- you have catastrophe upon catastrophe. Um, but the fact that, you know, it's, it's all kind of diffuse, you know, responsibility is very diffuse in this, in this kind of managerial superstructure that, that, uh, that leads us. Um, there is no reckoning. There is no mechanism to not even like depose these people. Like, I mean, even Fauci is, has now, what, what is it like icons? People, people kiss his image. They kneel, uh, you know, in, in front of the, the great man. And what is, I think this is probably his second, you know, incredible catastrophe after the AIDS crisis. So I, there, there is no reckoning, is there, for these people? It's very interesting. There was obviously uh, an early attempt, I think, to, to hurt Fauci or, to take him down, right? There's his emails were were released, uh, and of course, those those Freedom of Information Act uh, requests can be denied or delayed indefinitely. So clearly, somebody decided that they needed to hurt him a little bit. Uh, they were released with key passages redacted. So one imagines that they are within the bureaucracy uh, in, in America. There are people who could potentially leak uh, redacted passages in the emails that are already out there. So there's probably an effort to control Fauci. I would, I would guess, maybe the side or, or other other agencies, but to just bring him in. There's a similar thing happened with the what was his name Hancock, the the UK health minister, who was filmed by you know he's filmed in his office having an affair with his secretary or somebody, right? And uh, that was obviously an intelligence agency operation, and it was used to force him out of office, and then the UK changed direction on containment directly after. Yeah. It's to on these specific uh, health ministers in Corona, SARS, or whoever, to during shows that it can be done, but it's being done by shadowy forces inside the bureaucracies that aren't really interested in ending containment entirely. Uh, they don't really want out. They just don't want too much power to to wander into these uh, into these uh, as the public health bureaucratic sector, right? Uh, it's, but yeah, there, there won't be. I don't think there can be indictments or, or any any serious backlash against the the researchers who who did this. Uh, there's the I think my theory of the elites in general is that they form this 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 sort of cohesive consensus. And they, there's very little accountability or attempts to exclude people inside, and that 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 this, this discipline that they have makes them powerful, right? And it also demobilizes them and makes it hard for them to act strategically. So no one can no one can sort of excommunicate elite actors or or punish them for misdeeds. Uh, but at the same time, there's widespread consensus always on policies, so they are able to. Act. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's um, it's it's kind of the um, kind of it's 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 a lead theory, and it's all kind of like a, a class stratus thing, um, you know, and it also just you know completely implodes the 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 concept of you know any sort of democratic accountability not that anyone would still consider that you know any reality you know people listening to this podcast that that has anything to do with with the reality i think this is becoming clearer and clearer to more and more people at least i am hoping that it is becoming clearer and clearer um because there is there is obviously no no mechanism within any global system or local system to um to bring these people to account and also the idea that um it's been what it's going to be almost two years very soon since this thing started um and we started with you know two weeks to save the nhs you know flatten the curve whatever medium posts and people getting scared and um and we've essentially turned many many states of the world into de facto police states even even here like you know now there's a mandate to to wear masks on the street there are curfews in action um you know for the vaccinated unvaccinated like it's it's just it's it's insane um uh you know our whole lives have been turned into just one long tsa line you know it's it's airport security 24 7 all the time um so i don't know what what has this kind of shaken your um I don't know your idea of of what politics can do for the common man, or is has this changed your perspective on what is possible politically, um, or or you know were you very blasé to begin with, or you 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 weren't uh, you weren't shocked by this? The secret of it, I'm not a. Uh, I'm very profoundly anti-liberal and anti-democratic. Uh, I've always been very pessimistic about uh, European democracy. I think it's a huge mistake. And uh, of course, the globalizing institutions and the attempt to, to take power and put it in inscrutable bureaucratic systems has been the worst developments for Western civilization uh, in our entire history. So, so I, I was already very, very pessimistic about the prospects for reasonable policy or anything from from our current political systems. But what I, I never really imagined that that uh, such draconian, uh, insane policies would be would be implemented in the way that they have uh, what changed my thoughts. Uh, what what changed in my ideology? I always thought that. Uh, so uh, democracies, they, they only want uh, everyone to eat too much food and watch too much television and get too much fat. You know, they, they all, it's always just about this excess abundance and trying to placate the population uh, with amusements and, and alcohol and, and drugs, right? And, and I never imagined that uh, they, would, they would become so, uh, I guess, authoritarian is the wrong word, they always were authoritarian, they would become so... Uh, so heavy-handed in, in repression. I always thought we were at least protected in uh, the level of our everyday existence that states wouldn't really bother to to repress their populations because it's counterproductive and it, it, it destabilizes them ultimately. And it, I think this shows how they are much easier than any of us thought. They're, they're really, really insane. A lot of the people who run our governments are completely out of their minds. And I never imagined that this would happen. I thought that know what's going to be mismanaged in some way it would have been in the other direction right i think we all thought that in I did anyway, january february 2020 if anything they would do nothing at all right 
wouldn't even seen so something uh, and and it could be very serious. It could have been SARS one all over again, you know. Uh, so if anything, I thought they would they would fail that way. And the fact that they have failed this way is is, is disturbing, and dangerous. Um, that shows, I think, they are really really insane. A lot of these people are just out of their minds. Yeah, so is this your theory that they're just completely out of their minds? Is there, um, was there kind of a variant of reality where they would have failed in a different direction? Because to me, it felt that you know, China, you know, put out those videos of people collapsing in the street and you know hazmat suits and just complete lockdown. They had the first idea of you know total lockdown. Then WHO jumped on the lockdown wagon, and it felt to me like that was the first domino. And essentially any state that wouldn't lock down would have to justify why it wouldn't lock down because obviously China, this is how they, you know, they contain the the the, the most deadly virus in the universe. Um, so it felt to me like, okay, if you're a world leader or a national leader, you kind of, you know, your your job was to lock down or else. And then that spiraled out of control. And here we are two years later, just still, you know, justifying that first mover uh, thing. Uh, of course, I, I only described my perspective at the time. I've learned a lot in, in the last 20 months or so. I would never want uh, governments to, to manage a pandemic ever again. I want them to do nothing. I, I've also learned, I think, that there isn't any other path. They're either going to do this and go crazy or they're going to do nothing. There is no, there's no middle path. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. Sort of office politics is a bad one, but uh, leftism has it sort of works in this way where once an institution is has been has been invested by by leftists, there's there's always the right position, the correct position is always the most extreme one. Isn't at the most extreme uh, will be outflanked by more extreme inferiors who will depose them and assume leadership. Once, once these leftist orientations are set up, you have policies which, which are constructed such that the correct position is always at an extreme end. So uh, this is just how leftism organizes itself. So once you have leftist institutions, you can't you can't have moderation anymore. You have just walls to the wall insanity containments, or you have nothing. And uh, so I learned a lot. Of course, I I oppose. Uh, pandemic management entirely now. But at the time, of course, I think a lot of the dissident right in February 2020 thought governments would do the opposite. That they wouldn't close borders, that they wouldn't try to protect the populations from, from the initial virus. And, uh, and a lot of people on the right were worried about that, right? Uh, and, and I guess I was a part of that as well, though. Again, I've learned in the, in the meantime to be much more cautious about what you want your governments to do because they, are, they have this debilitating sort of and they can't behave rationally uh, and with moderation, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and like you said, there is there is kind of this this ratcheting into the direction of the you know the right side of history, and the right side of history is always seems to be always more safety, more protection, zero COVID, zero deaths. You know, you don't want to be the person left standing when the you know round of musical chairs is over, and you're the person who's like responsible for you know, one death or, you know, for death in general, like as a philosophical concept. So it it seems to me that, you know, there's, there is no way to walk back a lot of this stuff. That's the scary part to me. Um, actually, like, I think it was like at the beginning of the year or last year, I wrote like this, you know, lockdown is forever. And I still believe that. I think, you know, once you 
take a measure like lockdown out of the box and you create the um, not only kind of the, the, the philosophical structure where people accept it and they accept it once, accept it twice. That's already part of the the toolbox. You know, there's no way to, you know, and then people were telling me, oh, no, no, they, they stopped locking down in the particular place where I was. Well, since then, they've locked out maybe five more times in that particular place and everyone everywhere else, because this is now on the menu. Lockdowns are on the menu. Masks are on the menu. You know, masks for children, masks for toddlers are on the menu. So any sort of, of ultra invasive, paranoid, safety is hysterical. Uh, measure is now on the menu and people seem to like it, which is kind of the, the in, in a way, the scariest part. You'd think that people would revolt. Like, why, why do you think that it's, there's so much acceptance for this stuff? You know, it's, it's, I think a big part of it is, uh, well, first I, I would say the, uh, oh, never mind. Uh, a big part of it is, is uh, people have been isolated for a long time at home and, out of the ordinary social environments, even though that you know here in Bavaria and Munich it's a little bit more open, but I still don't see friends from abroad anymore. All my American friends, I I never see them anymore, and I I used to have you know friends from Czechian and 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 Sweden visit, and it was always you always see people from abroad, and there's you're part of a broader social world, and it's grounding, and you form broader opinions in this way, and. And everyone's isolated now, are much more isolated than they ever were. Uh, most of my interactions now happen through a computer. And it's, I think that's, that's been very, it's had very interesting cultural effects and it's, it's made people very extreme in some of their views. So I think I, a friend was telling me that he thinks a lot of the journalism around Corona is so insane because journalists are the one class that have literally never been back to an office since April 2020. They have been at home this whole time themselves calling people doing interviews whatever sort of insane internal domestic world where they're afraid to go outside and afraid of the virus so people don't have any real concrete experience with what is with the virus itself because our governments have tried to remove direct experience of reality right and they substitute scary headlines and disease statistics instead and that becomes everyone's reality you can't talk to your friends as easily as before at the pub or or at the beer garden or something and learn learn what other people think and learn about you know your friend whose aunt got sick but she's fine you can't do that anymore and it's it's all mediated by media now and it's all it's all filtered through various social media platforms and that's very that's had a very radicalizing effect and i think uh, the next thing is that no one knows how to turn this off i think a lot of governments really do want to end it now uh, at least at some level you know maybe no one cares maybe you know administrators i know don't care about masks they're happy to make us wear masks until we all die but, but they don't want to walk down anymore they, they don't want a lot of the heavier restrictions that is destroying our cities you know it's very bad uh, office mandates nobody goes to work anymore and the center of european cities will die you know all the restaurants all the shops they exist is because everyone works in the center of Munich, right? You close all you close all the offices. Everyone works from home. That all goes away. No one wants that to happen, but no one knows how to how to turn this around. And people have just gotten crazy. That's and and there's no without 
encouraging people to mix socially and engage in ordinary instinctive human behavior to ground themselves and develop direct experience of reality there's, there's no way out no one knows how to turn this off so i i yeah i don't know how to fix it you know it's very a very complex problem yeah and i feel like like you say you know the the cat's out of the bag with a lot of this stuff you know we are permanently changed there are there are, you know children who've been born under this this regime my baby's been born under this regime i mean who knows how long this is gonna 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 last um and there are you know also like young people whose like core formative years have been these you know two years where they should have been out and and socializing and and doing things with with yeah just being normal <laughs> just I, I don't even know if, if the concept of normal was still recognizable to some to some people like even even to me i mean I've obviously been highly online in the last year or so, at least. Um, and, you know, it's been good in many ways, obviously. You know, this podcast is an offshoot of that. But um, I am forever changed. I am, you know, socially much more inept than I used to be. I used to be very outgoing and kind of like a social butterfly. But I am, you know, maybe like one one step away from full-blown out autism by now. So yeah, it's 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 crazy. And I can't even imagine for people who already had, you know, social anxiety or, or problems to to interact with people, which is probably a lot of people nowadays with the internet already. Uh I can't even imagine what it what it does. I mean, the the fallout from this will be it will be so complex and so weird in so many ways. I don't think we can even model that. I mean, I don't know. Um, have you, um, ha has your life changed significantly? I mean, you said your friends are, are not around, you're not really seeing anyone, um, as much. Um, but, but how, how else has, has your existence changed since, since this has happened? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting thoughts about this. Uh, just, just, start, I noticed that, uh, people, the way they behave in public is now much more obtuse. Uh, they're always in the way they walk much more slowly. They're not aware of people around them anymore. That's these stupid rules about 1.5 meters apart all the time. But these people just are in their heads and not paying attention to others around them like they were before. It's very striking how, how it's just been frustrating to interact in the real world now because people are always in the way. They're always riding the bicycle the wrong direction. It's very interesting. Uh, it's been, it's been, it's, it's created a lot of sort of interpersonal chaos and made getting back to real life and trying to go to parties and get outside worse. Uh, it's made, you know, it's not, it's not as fun as it used to be. Uh, personally, I, I, of course, I, I'm a runner. I talk about this all the time. When, when the first hit and the lockdowns first occurred, I thought this would be great. I would just run more. time to train, not allowed to work, so I could maybe run 180 kilometers a week, you know, twice a day. But, you know, really, really train hard. And I, re and I haven't anymore you know it turns out that a lot of athleticism and the stuff that i did was dependent on social interaction you know it's about you train for a race you run with your friends and it's not fun to train by yourself when there's no races to train for and so you know now i gain weight i don't run as much uh you know i don't nearly as often i feel cognitively impacted also by the isolation there's a certain amount of social interaction you need to to uh always I'm, I'm a crazy internet artist I'm, i don't like other people very much and i always i i am i'm recluse you know but, uh, i was never reclusive uh, as much as i have been this past 
year and a half, and I realize that the lack of social interaction is uh, is, is ultimately a sort of it's it's bad for for clear thinking, and it's it's hard to think straight about 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 problems because I don't know it's stabilizing in some way. It's it's just an important part of being human. We are social creatures, and there are, there are very strange effects, psychological effects that occur when you are in in prolonged states of minimal social interaction which just another thing i noticed about myself and i ask other people and they say similar things uh vivid dreams are another thing that has been happening to me for the last 18 months or so where you have very vivid dreams uh, very strange dreams that i never i never really dreamed i didn't care about my dreams much before but i think it's another feature of social isolation and prolonged solitude which which is what has occurred what's very interesting to me is i think I think uh, the, the year and a half of home office we have had, uh, that will never be reversed. I already see one of the reasons uh, in here in Bavaria anyway, where I have some insight into the local, not local, regional, the, the state bureaucracy and how, how planning occurs is uh, a lot of the internal pressure for lockdowns was driven by bureaucrats who never want to work anymore. And they, they never want to work. And so all the home office rules uh, that apply to me and others have all been formalized now. And so one of the reasons they don't want to lock down so much anymore is, is everyone has to go to the office anymore. So it's it's fine, right? That we can go back to the restaurants and they open everything up. Bureaucrats don't have to go to work. That, that could last generations. Uh, and it's what does it mean when the state employs literally thousands you know, of bureaucrats who make enormous amounts of money and who as Americans, it would be the equivalent of tenured professors. They can never be fired. When they retire, they still receive full salary until they die. The enormously expensive uh, bureaucrats who just don't do work anymore, right? They're just gone. And whatever they did before, I guess it was never necessary and nobody cares. I have no idea. And and th these people will never work again. Uh, and their higher successors probably won't work either. And the state will just support these people for indefinitely 30, 60 years. I don't know how long it lasts. This is really crazy to me. Uh, I don't know what the alternatives would be, but it's it's devastating. And, and again, I guess I would only say there's there's no way to turn this off. No one knows how to stop any of it. Yeah, yeah, that's it. And you know, like you said, you know, there there's there's so much. There's just so much slack in the system. I feel like you know, Europe and the U.S. have have been living off you know the fat of the land for a long time. Uh, for you know the this it's just an unsustainable um, level of civilizational consuming. You know, there's there's a lot of you know there's just not enough slack in the system to make this last forever. You see this in you know supply chain issues. You see this in just you know like we said uh, every level of of you know managerial bureaucratic incompetence. The fact that you know barely anyone knows how to build a bridge anymore. This is essentially you know the kind of the the opening credits of of idiocracy that we're sliding into from from so many levels so i don't know do you think that there is still enough slack in the system to keep feeding you know bureaucrats like these for another 50 60 years or um is are things going to come to a more um abrupt conclusion sooner than that it's a very good question i i don't know uh it's 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 very hard to say. I always I always am more pessimistic, and think 
they would hit a wall sooner and I'm always wrong. So I, I guess I guess I would try to err on the side of saying they can they can maintain this for a long time probably. I don't I don't have direct insight into all of the all of the processes that, that underlie this, uh, all of the limitations that there are or that possibly exist. The, the, I would tend to say that they could probably probably continue this for a long time. Uh, they they certainly don't act like they're, they're running out of anything. Uh, against any kind of hard limits. Uh, they are, it's exactly the opposite. Uh, they they behave like this is completely sustainable and this can be done forever. Uh, of course, maybe it's just that it's in no one's interest to, to worry about uh, the distant future. And another one of my my themes is that there is no long term planning. Right? There's no uh, longer term planning beyond eight or nine months. I think if you understand everyone's planning within about an eight month window, a lot of government actions become clear. So maybe. It is just they have no idea uh, on the next eight months, and so as long as they can pay each other, it's okay. But you know, I, I receive a pay raise. I hardly been to work. Uh, they, and there are really strange problems, especially with the supply chain issues you mentioned. So you know, use some machines. They're not they're not crazy complicated or anything. They're like fancy photographic equipment, right? And uh, one of them, it it doesn't work anymore. And uh, it's broken in some way, and no one can fix it. Uh, it's literally just permanently broken. You can't find one. Uh, and, and there's some kind of supply chain issue, and we just don't have this thing anymore. And I, that's never happened in my life. Uh, that, that you just don't have access to this important, this important machine, which would have been changed out in, in, in a day, uh, two years ago. Uh, it's, it's, these are very disturbing, strange things. And what's weird is how everyone reacts to it. Everyone's just fine with this. Uh, and it's it's very strange to me. It's that everyone's like, oh yes, that machine, it's it's broken. We can't do the photographs anymore. And it's it's no one questions this or asks about how how strange everything has suddenly gotten. Uh, it's it feels like we are just in a totally different world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's it it, it does kind of it feels like you know the, the the fact that we've been online for so long and away from each other has kind of trained us for the world that is coming uh and then you kind of have the reality where um you know meat space or you know IRL is becoming uh just this completely distorted place but then you're you're trained for the internet anyway so you don't really notice or you're already kind of like a bit uh, a bit out of it, you know. I mean, feel I feel like people are a bit sleepwalking. They they don't relate to reality anymore because it's, it's it is foreign to them now. It's it's just not the same place. So, um, you know why? You know, no one's really invested in the in, in reality anymore. So maybe that's why they're just, you know, they're kind of washing their hands of whatever happens. Uh, and you know, I I you can see this in in inflation and um, you know. The, the coming stagflation apparently that 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 we're going to see so i don't know um it's the markets haven't felt it yet but it does feel to me like you know some something's coming like you see you see these little signs you know the fact that your your machine's not being replaced the fact that you know people are getting paid without doing anything uh you know remote work for a lot of employees you know either in the private or public sector just means you know sitting at home and you know uh just watching stuff on the internet, you know, scrolling TikTok. Um, there's a lot of value that's not being, you know, harvested in, into the, the real world. So 
Um, I guess, I guess, yeah, the question is again, you know, how much slack is there in the system? How much, you know, how much can any, any of this take? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very dystopian. It's kind of <laughs> disturbing to me and it, it could collapse at any time, which is also kind of a, the, the weird part. Yeah, no, it is. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I never quite know how unstable it is. Uh, the, it, the, on the one hand, I've just never seen such levels of insane behavior as, as I have over the last two years or so, uh, where all of the, all of the, the corona policies are, are enforced with this insane eagerness and energy, uh, with, with no, with no view to their true cost or, or, or to, how we might stop doing these these policies, as you said, uh, once you opt into things like lockdowns, you can't you can't so easily opt out. And uh, already we have, you know, editorials and major newspapers talking about how we might lock down for the influenza in the future. You know, and and uh, of course this was predictable and a terrible idea to lock down in the first place because you can't ever ever stop doing this. Uh, an important consideration, I, I guess, is is for me how long major cities and economic centers in Europe can be maintained if no one's at work anymore. I think a big part of the European culture is, is, is centered on major cities. And that's also part of our, I don't know, our society and, and our productivity as well. And it's, it's already starting to dissolve. And I, I think perhaps there will just be a cultural dissolution uh, in advance of an economic one where people People move out to the countryside, and where a lot of sort of sort of what happened in the U.S. since civil rights, of course, where a lot of cities are sort of hollowed out, and that has that has. If you look at America, it has it has had there had very very persistent cultural effects, and uh, it's. I think a lot of. I, I don't want to offend American friends, but there's there's sort of a. A problem with degraded American culture. I think everyone sort of understands there's something wrong with, with, with uh, sort of at least American culture as it's exported and experienced uh, abroad. And I lived in America for many years. It's not an insult to anyone there. There's something happens when you when you wipe out your cities and displace them, and and there's this massive generations long cultural degradation that occurs. And it feels like we may be doing something very similar right now. You also talk a lot about um, the vaccines lately because this is kind of the, the thing that is now on the top level of, of coronavirus uh, policy. Um, so, um, I mean, does the vaccine save lives? Kind of what, what is your take on it? Um, you know, you've, you've been quite critical of it, but I'm, I'm, I wonder what, you know, what, what, is, what is wrong with the vaccine? Because essentially it's been billed as the thing that is going to release us from whatever we're in at the moment. Yes. Uh, so at the start, of course, I was very pro-vaccine. Pro I thought the vaccine would, would would at least end the rationale for lockdowns and it would get us out of this mess. Uh, everything could be, could be resolved with, with vaccination. The, it just hasn't worked. It just obviously hasn't worked. And so the vaccine has a twofold effect, roughly uh, speaking, and setting aside the fact that it has a very bad side effect profile. There's something wrong with it. It, it hurts people. Vaccine injuries are a real thing. There's a lot of data, not good data, but we have many indications that it's dangerous to certain people, young men, uh, and that it's overall much more dangerous 
than ordinary vaccines. So we have, but setting that aside, it has two effects. It's corona less severe in the vaccinated. So if you're vaccinated, you will have less, a lowered likelihood of severe illness, but not as much as a lot of media sources betray. So some of the best data from England, for example, it sort of just reduces your risk by about 20 or 30 years. So if you're 85, actually it's worse. It reduces, it gives you the same mortality risk as a 75-year-old who's unvaccinated. That's because the high age brackets are where all most of the mortality happens. So so there is an effect that is protective, but it's not it's not hugely protective. It's much, much worse than all the vaccines we know. The other thing the vaccine seems to do, even, even if we don't understand all the ways it does this, is it seems to increase transmission. And it doesn't just increase transmission because we have ended lockdowns or something. Those policies never did a lot to contain corona. It increases transmission because of some other effect, a combination of effects. And so most of what I post about the vaccines is trying to understand how they increase transmission. That's the most important question. If we can figure out how they increase transmission, maybe we can mitigate some of that increased transmission. But the overall effect of the vaccines you have, it does protect somewhat from severe outcomes and it increases transmission. On the other hand, is out and you're in the same world as you were before, more or less it seems. So everywhere that is heavily vaccinated right now has much same or slightly worse statistics as they had before anyone was vaccinated. Uh, places that are less vaccinated have, uh, it's, it's sort of a mixed bag, but they are, they're sort of Bulgaria, sort of in the Balkans, they are, where you are, Romania, things are much worse uh, than, where you have very low vaccine uptake and they're much worse than before. Uh, so it seems that maybe what happens with the vaccines is they make corona more virulent overall. And so for vaccinated populations, they just retain the level of corona risk they always had, but unvaccinated populations then get punished for not taking up the vaccines. And we see similar effects in uh, in animal vaccinations, the classic cases, Merck's disease in chickens, where chickens are vaccinated since since 1970s against this, this herpes virus, right? And uh, they... And basically, you have very similar chicken mortality, though, as when they started vaccinating against Merck's disease, against this herpes virus, because it just got more virulent. And so it seems that viruses have an optimal level of virulence in the population, where they don't take too many people out of circulation, but they still spread. And if you use vaccines that don't kill the virus outright, that vaccines that don't stop the virus, uh, but merely slow it down, the, the virus just evolves to become more virulent in response to the vaccines and you end up with the same same situation. So I think this is the main effect we're seeing. There's probably other ancillary effects. Uh, and so the vaccines overall have just been not not helpful. They haven't they haven't stopped corona and they won't ever stop it. It's obvious that they're not effective. Mm-hmm. Uh, Do you have a, a kind of theory of what, what the the mechanism would be where you know the, the vaccines would be pushing kind of this evolution in in the virus? Because I guess most viruses typically in the wild, they do tend to evolve towards greater virulence, but maybe less, you know, killing potential just because their 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 idea is to to spread as much as they can and to, you know, 
propagate. So um, I wonder why would the vaccine be the, the mechanism that, you know, pushes them into a more, um, you know, drives their evolution into a different direction? How does that work? So, so with chickens, we understand the mechanism very well. There are Merck's disease, this herpes virus, has many different strains, and there are mild strains that don't do very much, and there are very dangerous strains that kill all the chickens within a few days, and uh, the chickens are infected right after hatching. Uh, the, the mild strains are, are advantaged because the chickens have to survive to spread them, right? Uh, and and so so the uh, before vaccination you had mainly mild Merck's disease because the chickens uh, had to survive to spread the virus. When you start vaccinating the chickens, the the milder the milder strains are outcompeted by the more virulent ones because the chickens the vaccinated chickens spread more, and the less virulent strains are outcompeted because they just don't produce as much virus they don't spread as much as the more virulent strains. So the, the vaccinated, when you vaccinate all the chickens, the, the more virulent strains are then advantaged because they spread more, right? So there's not, I guess an important point is that the, the damage viruses do is, is directly related to their rate of replication to sort of load of virus you have in you. So the viruses have to balance how much they replicate, how much they virus you shed with uh, the virus, right? So there's always this balance between how how much spreading the virus can do, how much how much it infects your cells, and and how many copies of itself it make it makes that makes you sicker, of course, and and how much spreading it can do. So so a virus that a virus that is a virus that is too eager to to replicate will make you too sick. You'll 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 die, or in our case, you'll stay home, right? And uh, you won't spread the virus. Uh, the virus that is that is not aggressive enough won't get anywhere. Uh, it won't be spread. So there's sort of an optimal level of of, of replication. Viruses tune themselves. Via, so so the the coronavirus, this the SARS two virus, tunes itself via various mutations in the spike protein to achieve optimal levels of, of replication and, and ability to enter cells. So, so it, it replicates at the right rate uh, for, for population, so it doesn't make people too sick and it can still spread. So vaccines upset this balance, right? They, they, make, it, they make it so, so that the, uh, the virus has uh, a lot of room to expand upwards in virulence without being punished for killing its hosts, or in our case, making you stay home. This seems to be a, a big aspect of how of how vaccines drive virus evolution. Vaccines when they don't vaccines when they don't stop infection. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah, yeah, I think I think I understand now. So the 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 people who would um, essentially pretty much die from from the the variants that were. Uh, quite aggressive they don't they just have a mild version so the more aggressive variants like you said that punish the unvaxxed um get to kind of escape uh and and you know ravage through the population um but i guess if if everyone i mean this is me you know being contrarian here if everyone was vaxxed would that dampen the effect even of the the more aggressive versions that are created now through these uh through this kind of leaky leaky vaccine so there's uh, there's two ways the virus escapes. There's a few ways, but just to simplify, there's two ways the virus escapes the vaccine. 
uh, it escapes via mutations that escape antigens, right? So, you know, the, the, your body recognizes certain proteins in the virus, or the virus can mutate away from that recognition and it can escape what your, what your immune system recognizes. And so it, it evades your antibodies uh, and your T cells and, and your, your immune response. So it can sort of mutate away from, from your, your immunity and that's antigenic drift. But another thing the virus can do to escape immunity is to replicate faster, sooner. So to get sort of start on your immune system, it takes a little while for your body to to respond, to send its T cells, and to to start producing antibodies against an infection. If the virus replicates very fast, very early, it can it can infect you before you can respond. So, so the vaccines do, do both of these things. They, they cause the virus to drift antigenically away from your immunity, and they also encourage strains that are more aggressive earlier so they can get a hold in your lungs and infect you. Uh, so, so that aside, yes, of course, if we vaccinate everyone, then we have created a world where we have probably just returned to our prior corona risk, right? And we haven't increased it any. Uh, that's, but we'll never have 100% uptake is the thing, right? The, we, we don't, uh, we're not, as much as some of our politicians want to be, we're not China, and we can't, we can't force universal vaccination, so it's not really going to happen. Uh, there's always going to be probably at least 10 to 15% everyone in all of our countries who aren't vaccinated, uh, and children aside, of course. And uh, so, so we always have to remember that there's never going to be universal vaccine uptake. And we originally, we always, public health was about everyone's health outcome. Whether you choose to be vaccinated or not, the interventions have to help everyone. So, of course, it matters that, that the unvaccinated are hurt by this. But another point is that we will become dependent on the vaccines in the long so, so we could reach a point where we have to vaccinate all children and everyone all the time because we have encouraged the evolution of truly dangerous SARS-2 strains, right? There, there is no way out. And so we always have to vaccinate all the time, all the time, just like the chickens. If we stop vaccinating chickens against Merck disease, we would have very few chickens. It will, maybe a few would survive with some sort of innate immunity or adaptations and they would be sick. But if that's unthinkable for humans, our culture has not permitted us to do this. So we would have to universally vaccinate forever. And uh, so this is kind of a doom scenario. It's a little bit sci-fi and, and one shouldn't exaggerate this either. So, so it took, you know, 20 years maybe of universal chicken vaccination to make herpes virus, Merck's disease in chickens into a very apocalypse scenario disease didn't happen right away. Uh, we're at the beginning of this process, I think, here with, with Corona. But uh, it will it will progress, and it will get worse. And it, right now, it's only a little bit worse. One shouldn't exaggerate it a lot. The Delta strains aren't, aren't clearly more pathogenic. They are more transmissible, but not, you know, easy people on the internet, these hysterics. They're like, oh, it has a, has a reproduction number of 12 or something. It's, it's retarded idiots. It's not, not true. It's, it's maybe 10% more transmissible than Alpha was uh, at its low point. So the other thing that happens is the strains, of course, they get worse over time because they, 
they accumulate mutations and they they don't they don't spread as well right so 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 the one shouldn't exaggerate we haven't created the apocalypse yet but it's conceivable if we can't stop this in the next decade or 15 years uh that we could have created a world where uh has become quite dangerous uh, but i think there's a long long time between now and then and uh there's a lot of hope that this will actually stop mm-hmm. And this, um, the case that you present, the is it the the, the Merck virus? That that's an HPV virus. And is the um, the um, the vaccine used in that case? Is it simply a leaky vaccine, or is it an mRNA vaccine, or is is that where the kind of the, the similarity comes in? It's, it, they're leaky vaccines. Are they? They never. They never, as far as I know, have developed uh, mRNA vaccines for the chickens. They do use uh, some vector vaccines, which would be like Johnson and Johnson or Sputnik or something, but they don't use they don't use uh, mRNA for for animals. That's a very new technology. Uh, uh, but the the similarity is is that they are they are uh, they don't really prevent infection. They just slow the virus down a little bit. So what you're doing when you slow the virus down is it's it's almost the inverse of a vaccine. You allow the virus to learn how to be your immunity, you're sort of vaccinating the virus, if that makes sense, right? The, so, so you just disadvantage the virus enough, it can still replicate, it can still kind of learn how to, how to beat this. And uh, it's it's very leaky vaccines. They seem to kind of function as, as sort of vaccinations for the virus and less vaccinations for us. And uh, similar treatments also, monoclonal antibody treatments and so forth, there are a lot of theories that these also train the virus in how to escape immunity, uh, how, to, how to escape human immunity. They allow the virus to develop multiple strains in the same host that can recombine and experiment with different gene combinations to see what is most effective in, in escaping uh, our, our antibody response. Yeah, that's uh, that's kind of the a very very disconcerting uh, version uh, of of events. I mean, now I'm uh, now thinking about it. Um, I'm uh, one of the things that comes up a lot, um, and which uh, a, a previous guest on the show, the, the show hasn't aired yet. Um, you know, Richard Hanania, he was on the show, uh, and I know you've had some some harsh words about about something he posted recently. You know, he's very much on the vaccine. Um, bandwagon. Um, his, I think, his argument is that at the moment, in many regions, he sees that um, you know death rates are high, very high, almost exclusively in the population of the unvaxxed. Um, I'm curious how you how you interpret that the the fact that you know it it is true here in Romania as well. You know, most people who die of coronavirus at the moment are unvaxxed. This statistic, taken on its own, sounds damning and I can see why Richard would would view it that way um but I'm curious what your interpretation of this is because yeah you know this is on its face it's like a, it's a serious uh, in, indictment of uh, of remaining unvaxxed there's, there's no there's no question as far as I can tell unless statistics are pervasively falsified and I don't believe that they are I don't believe that the means to do that exists uh, that the, the unvaccinated die at higher rates and are hospitalized at higher rates. Uh, they're probably increasingly, maybe eight or nine months out, they're infected at lower rates, but they die at higher rates. Uh, so that's probably the world we're all headed to. That's where England is now. Uh, 
is probably a result of multiple factors, the virus specializing on vaccinated populations. So the unvaccinated, it's worse for them if they're infected, but it's worse for them if they're infected, but uh, chances of being infected are probably lower, massively lower, but a little bit. Uh, but this whole universe has been created by the vaccines by universal vaccination. And the, we have created, uh, driven the virus in a direction uh, that it punishes the unvaccinated in this way. We have moved the risk around, but we haven't eliminated it. And uh, you can't ever forget that. The correct policy was always to use the vaccines in a very limited way to vaccinate the highest risk people. And already then, if we had just done that, we would have reduced the overall population wide mortality risk to levels of uh, seasonal influenza. We didn't have to vaccinate everyone and we would reduce evolutionary pressure on the virus and it would be would have been safer. And of course, we could observe how the virus had, 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 virus had evolved in response to these interventions and we could expand or restrict access to vaccines in the future. We didn't do that and that was a huge mistake. And we are we are going to continue to to see disadvantages uh, from this mistake until we stop people who don't want to be vaccinated are doing you a favor and you have to leave them alone they 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 don't want it and young people shouldn't be vaccinated people who have already been sick obviously there's really no upside uh, uh universal vaccination campaigns need to stop and uh they're dangerous and they're going to make is a lot worse. So my response to Hanania is, is yes, you know, if you don't want to end up in the hospital, uh, if, you're, if you're at risk, uh, the vaccinations might be a good idea. But universal vaccination is a terrible idea. And moreover, your absolute risk as you know, a relatively young man, I, 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 I don't I drink a lot, I don't smoke or anything, I, I run there's no reason I don't need a vaccination. I'm completely safe and it's and healthy. And it's also pro-social for me not to be vaccinated. It's it's better that I develop natural immunity and uh, there's no upside for the state to vaccinate me. It doesn't, they don't win anything. Uh, and it makes, it increases pressure on the virus and makes it worse. So that's, that would be my response. Mm-hmm. And for example, if you said that um, only a, a fraction of the population should be vaccinated, do you think there would be a risk for for even like a fraction of the population, let's say five percent of the population, is still you know a, a massive, you know, hundreds of millions of people? Do you think that this this effect of of you know putting pressure on the virus, you know, in in the presence of a leaky a vaccine, would that not also influence the uh, the creation of new variants, or is it just you know proportionally lower risk to 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 do that? Yeah, the- the virus is a, and its interactions with us is a complex system, and no one can control it. And uh, no one, also, no one can predict what will happen when you intervene in it. It's very complicated, and we still don't understand all the effects. I, I only present hypotheses about what's likely happening based on what we see with animals. We still don't fully understand what's going on. It is obvious to me anyway that transmission is way up since vaccination and there's a relationship, but that's all we can really say for sure. Uh, so you're intervening in a complex system and you don't really know what consequences your interventions will have. So the smart thing to do from the start is to intervene as little as possible in 
demographic cohorts where there is the biggest possible upside. And if you look at how vaccines were developed in the past, polio vaccines, vaccines against smallpox, of course, the most famous uh, is used first in very small groups of people locally, a few thousand, 10,000, 20,000, then they sort of expand. They try to use it more and more, see what happens, see what kinds of side effects there are with the polio vaccine. There are serious missteps and mistakes. They, they, they adjust, they develop better, better methods, better vaccines. They vaccinate ever more widely over a course of 20, 30 years. Uh, and and uh, we have never done this before with a vaccine that was developed you know, in, in the course of a few months, really, it was in, in the course of several days. In fact, in, in January, they had already the sequence. And uh, it's it's uh, the sequence for Spike. And we we just immediately begin to vaccinate the entire population. And this will have, it's a very complex system. It will have very unpredictable effects. And we've seen that. And that was a huge, huge mistake, according to me. Yeah, it's uh, it's just just from the the level of systemic risk it's uh it's not something that anyone with uh with an understanding of of you know yeah just just you know the the type of um yeah risk that that people are in even even if the the downside is is low uh subjecting the whole world's population to you know a, a small risk of you know a catastrophic event is just uh it's just not not a not a uh, feasible version of, uh, of of how to do things. So yeah, I I, com- I completely agree with that. Um, uh, one one thing that's been evident to me is that COVID and this whole crisis serves um, kind of a religious impulse in in a lot of people. It's uh, it's become a meaningful event to them. And I think you've, you've also talked about, uh, you know, Ludwig's thesis that this is kind of an equivalent to war for our generation. There, there's never been like a force majeure type event like this for, you know, decades at least. So um, I, I wonder what, what your perspective is like, what, what need does this fulfill? And, you know, is this, is this part of why we're not going to get rid of, of COVID for a long time? Uh, so the no one has ever been in my lifetime ever been called to national service or, or asked to to engage in any sort of collective action on behalf of the nations or or the countries or anything and has been discouraged actually and you're not supposed to think this way and uh there's i think in all humans a desire to to on behalf of their society and the culture, and uh, this is this, these opportunities have been systematically denied to us because they're inconvenient for the globalists and and the the supranational bureaucracies that that sort of sit like ponds come on top of our universe, and uh, they they are so obviously uh, Corona and the response tapped into these, these these instincts people have to to sacrifice on behalf of their their countries and and even their villages or or their cities and and people that that staying home wearing masks uh, and whatever else uh, keeping their kids socially isolated was pro social and for the, the greater good and so there's all of these bottled up instincts in all of us. Uh, that they tapped into, and, and I won't deny it myself. Uh, the, especially, you know, Germany, you're not allowed to 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 be very nationalist or very interested in 
in, uh, in, in international military adventures. So initially it seemed interesting that we would mobilize for this instead. Uh, so that's obviously a part of it. Uh, the, the, uh, the other side is, is the state, of course. And I think there's, there's, there, there are always advantages for the state advantage of this this instinct in in the people and the state has never been able to access it before uh i think uh, i said on twitter you know it's just my idea that nuclear weapons prevent uh modern developed nation states from engaging in ordinary cycles of warfare and peace so we're just locked in an internal peace cycle and we all just get sicker and fatter and everything gets worse because there's no there's no broader national goals to trim off the fat and make us fitter and give us something to strive for and uh so we are in this extended world of, of, of enforced peace, enforced by our own technology. The states still want to access uh, the the cultural nationalist sentiments of the people in some way, even if leftism makes it impossible or or not very not very possible, not very uh, permissible to to directly call up these sentiments. So, so uh, Corona is, is another way in which they can they can ask people to act on behalf of the nation without being explicitly nationalist. It's been very interesting to see how in, in the Corona era since since April, maybe March, uh, media has been very domestically focused for the first time. You don't read a lot on the front page about what's happening. You know, I in fact ask you about Romania. You don't hear about a lot about it. And uh, certainly it's the first time where a lot of German media hasn't reported constantly on the United States, where, where you know, the U.S. is always in the media. You get often better informed about American elections and so forth, reading German papers than you are reading American ones. And for for the last 18 months, you read almost nothing about the United States and German media. It's very interesting. It's, it feels like a new sort of weird, perverted nationalism where instead we're always focused on our own country and, and you know, it's grown up or down in Germany, what's going on. And uh, and so obviously there's there's a lot of these old forces that, that were excluded because of the lack of, uh, lack of military uh, engagement uh, these these old these old forces are still still existent. They've been appropriated and reused by the Corona response. And and the question is, to what degree this was directed? To what degree people thought uh, maybe we can access these these instincts uh, for for disease suppression or activate them maybe for other purposes? I think there's it's no question. Climate change is another thing that they will not try to use a lot of these these things for. Uh, it was just an accident. It was just the pressures were building up, and they could be then used. They just burst forth of themselves, and were part of the reason there was this massive preference cascade uh, in February at the beginning of March uh, for lockdowns and for these sort of national actions against against this disease. Or well, just a last point. I talked for a long time, but uh, there's, there's, it's very interesting how there was never any population mobilization in response to Corona. So I and many others were infected already in March and there was a huge problem about, you know, how do we how do we staff nursing homes so that we don't get the, the elderly sick? You know, many of us who had Corona very early, they could have drafted us to to serve in nursing homes or to whatever, I don't know. And uh, there was never any mobilization like that at all. Uh, there was never any attempt to call up people to act on behalf of the countries or low-risk youth to, to do 
food deliveries or anything like that uh, would, would have been an obvious response uh, for SARS like illness. And instead, the state just does nothing like that. And I think modern bureaucracies are, are afraid of mobilized citizenries and don't want to call people to mass action. It's dangerous. And throughout, therefore, there's this mobilizing tendency of Corona, there's a nationalist focus, everyone's feeling uh, feeling German and feeling happy about their case numbers, they're down, and that's that's good for them, but they don't want they don't want people getting ideas. They don't want people uh, joining organizations and, and uh, meeting friends and and uh, delivering food to elderly people together. That that might be they might lose control of that kind of situation. I often said to myself, it would, would have been a lot more endurable, these lockdowns and everything, if if we all had something to do. If we all just, I remember, this, sorry, I will stop soon, but there's this, 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 uh, there's the whole thing with, uh, what do you call it, the spargel, the, the asparagus, uh, you know, they grow uh, in, in, in the spring and, and we always have, I guess, Eastern European migrant labor to harvest it. It's grown underground. And uh, they, of course, they couldn't come because of the lockdowns. And they, there was this hot, this 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 half-hearted effort to to recruit students to uh, to harvest the spargel, uh, the asparagus uh, in in uh, when it when it's when it, it it's like April or May or something when it becomes becomes to harvest and uh, and many people on Facebook and and on Twitter, many Germans I know, were all excited. It was fun. They went out with their, their school classmates, with their friends, and they they picked. It's like we could have done that the whole time. We could have had things like this the whole time instead. You know, I, I, students at university haven't been inside of the classroom or seen friends for two years. Imagine if you go to university, uh, it's your first year, uh, 2020, uh, you haven't, you haven't seen, you have hardly been to a library. You've been in, in school for two years. It's crazy to me. And this, and they live at home, they live in these, you know, these Wohngemeinschaften, these little, these little awful apartments and, uh, with 25 other students or whatever, and they're all by themselves. And it's, uh, it's this profoundly depressing, awful situation, and they never mobilized the population. They never, they never did anything like that. There's many obvious things they could. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I, I really like your point about this kind of new flavor of nationalism that's been kind of okayed, but it's not really nationalism. It's kind of like a, a, a liberal. Um, I don't know, bastardization of a, of a, of a nationalistic impulse. Um, and it's only been filtered through the approved channels of, you know, kind of like this, this feminization of, um, I don't know, the safetyist culture of this denial of death, you know, the, 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 the ultimate um, kind of womb environment where you never suffer any consequences. And if we all work together, no one will die again. Uh, and it's, it's irrational and, and histrionic and, and, and very weird. Um, but, you know, because it's, um, you can't really protect people in India by not wearing a mask and you just protect the people around you. Um, those instincts of, you know, protecting your neighbor uh, have, have kind of been, been taken over to, yeah, to, to be funneled into um, essentially I don't know, an acceleration of, of, uh, of forces that were already at work of essentially this kind of totalizing, you know, uh, devouring mother that's been, um, been, been piped in hot through every channel for, for decades now. Uh, it's, I don't know. I think it's a, it's a very good point. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a depressing reality.
yeah, there's, there's, uh, I don't know what to say really about it. It's, uh, it's, 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 it's another one of these, these things that it seems like it's evolved into a, a quasi stable system, right? And it's not really turning it off or redirecting it or, or anything. It's, it's just sort of stagnating in this position. And I, yeah, I don't know. I've been very pessimistic about the ability at, at social level to 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 turn this off i think that governments will will eventually try to withdraw the policy i think it's already happening they're trying to withdraw the policies or at least moderate them make them sort of longer term sustainable at least in germany i, I sense there's an effort to to make uh to find some sort of uh uh some some kind of uh permanent containment uh stabilized uh containment regime uh, that they can maintain indefinitely, which is much milder and doesn't depend on a lot of the arbitrary uh, interventions in the economy and so forth. Uh, uh, but it's it's opposed all the time by these very uh, quasi-stable social systems that they've, they've, they've unwittingly or or maybe wittingly set up. That people people have achieved a lot of private consensus among themselves about about what kind of containment is necessary and what kinds of actions are, are necessary in response to to the disease and, and they're not going to stop uh, a lot of ordinary people will be doing this until i die it's very obvious yeah do you think they still believe that that covid zero is the is the aim do you think that you know they they can they can banish the, the great dragon or or what's what's the animating impulse there it's very interesting the all of the covid zero people those, those <laughs> These people, they're, they're gone. Uh, they're, you hardly hear from them anymore. Uh, they they are a, a small clique of actually a lot of physicists, which is interesting, uh, and and modelers and so forth. Uh, they are they are now out of favor, and they they are already worried about this. They have they have their you know they have their own zero COVID conferences and so forth, and one can listen to their their talks. They're already worried about this uh, in in spring of this year. That that they had uh, locked themselves into the, uh, the the opposite of the COVID denialist position, or that they had become the the extreme on the other side of you know people who say there is no virus or something, and uh, and and so they have they have they've mostly been banished from public discourse. I think that there is no more uh, official hope entertained that that the virus can be eradicated. I don't know uh, though what people think is. Think that they're doing, uh, for example, wearing masks. So, so what? What, what are you doing? Uh, the, everyone is going to get the virus, whether you're vaccinated or not, whether you wear masks or not. Uh, we all have had multiple of the other common human coronaviruses. Every last person on Earth has had the other four human coronaviruses at least once, multiple times, most of the cases. And there's no way you're not going to get this. So why are you doing this? And it's 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 very bizarre to me, and uh, how little this is discussed or contemplated by often quite intelligent people. I, I have who behave, uh, who are you know PhDs, professors, you know, people, uh, even in the media, who behave about this uh, in ways that are just strike me as completely ridiculous. Uh, if you're going to get it, uh, there's no reason to delay uh, because uh, you're going to get older risk will go up. The, the only thing you can do is get sick now and and, and uh, get over it. And I think also because you have 
virulent strains with our vaccinations. You don't have to wait too long to get to get sick. Uh, so I, I don't I don't know what people think. I think what's happened is the media has has relentlessly exaggerated the risk of Corona uh, for propaganda purposes. Uh, so, so they, this is deliberate. You know, there are even internal documents from the German Interior Ministry that talk about this. Uh, they, they are. Uh, it was a public health measure, part of the public health measures, to exaggerate the risk of Corona so people would stay home and so forth. You know, and uh, they, this, this created this kind of feedback mechanism uh, where then a lot of the media then responds to their own panic propaganda with more insaneness and and again everyone's at home no one's grounded in reality or has any direct experience of the disease and so this has created this sort of storm of self-reinforcing uh disease paranoia and people if you believe the things that you read in the paper about how dangerous corona is you can't go outside you know the the people believe this has a 10 percent fatality rate they believe that it will kill their children and so we have all these social crutches that allow people to go outside and feel okay about it. And so the masks are one of those things, right? And and uh, vaccines are a huge one of those things. You know, people are being vaccinated and demanding others be vaccinated because they're just terrified. And uh, no one's thinking about this clearly. Uh, no one's understanding that they're all going to get it. Uh, it's it's uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm rambling. There's not much to say. It's 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 uh, it's a very very broken situation. Yeah, absolutely. And I, it just makes me think about, you know, the, the power of anecdote, because this is, this is kind of the thing that's been, um, I feel animating a lot of like social hysteria lately. I mean, if you even look at the, you know, the George Floyd incident, um, it is complete worldwide, total hysteria based on a, a, you know, recorded video anecdote. And I feel like coronavirus started this way as well. You know, you'd sat, you'd see you know, people collapsing in Wuhan and, you know, the people in the hazmat suits collecting, I don't know, corpses off the street or just, you know, just this crazy, I don't know, very strange, overblown anecdotes. And then you also have all of these little anecdotes because now this is how, for example, here in Romania, how they're driving vaccine uptake is complete hysteria in the media. Like my mother was like a few, a few days ago, she was like, babies are dying. Your baby will die. And I was like, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think the coronavirus changed so suddenly overnight that babies are dying and my baby specifically, my baby will die. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, and they're, they're pushing this thing that, you know, a 40 year old man, you know, regrets not taking the vaccine on his deathbed and he died and exploding from coronavirus or something like that. And, um, yeah, it's, it's the fact that these little, you know, fragments of information can have this outside uh, effect to, to freeze, you know, the planet in, in, in place for two years, you know, tells you also that a, a lot of this, I think, is also technologically mediated. Like you, you wouldn't have had the possibility to have this, this um, just histrionic reaction to it if you didn't have the side of, you know, the media, not only promoting this stuff, but actually profiting off of, um, you know, presenting things this way because this is the ultimate clickbait you know everyone's seen the george floyd video everyone's seen the the, the wuhan collapses and and all of that so um i don't know it's do, do you think that you know this is um we're stuck in the situation also because we have this technology that we're also addicted to as well question uh they uh social technology uh social media was integral to uh 
lockdowns, uh, promoting them in the earliest stages and uh, promoting compliance with them. I, it's very obvious. Uh, and it was also used by whoever was behind this. So you mentioned the videos, which are super interesting. Uh, there were coordinated social media campaigns uh, to to encourage uh, comments uh, with, with measures. And also in the earliest days, in, in early March, uh, to uh, encourage uh, citizens of governments who, uh, with governments, for example, the United Kingdom, which were not interested in locking down initially. Also in Germany, this was the case, so it's often been overlooked. Initially, you know, Angela Merkel, she said, we would, we would, uh, 70% of the populace would be infected and, and basically gestured in the direction of sort of the Swedish uh, approach. Uh, there were social media campaigns to to get citizens uh, uh, of these these countries that were more relaxed about it to to uh, contact their politicians and to be outraged about uh, the approach. So there was there was a massive use of social media, very sophisticated. Uh, so uh, very very high level stuff. I, I wrote about it in German. Uh, the this this it's very interesting, and, and we still don't know who did this. It's very curious. Uh, some of the accounts is. Uh, 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 Michael uh, Sanger has pointed out or managed out of China, but by no means all of them. And it's and there are still some of these accounts still operate. It's very interesting, and it's you think there would be massive interest in who who is promoting uh, lockdowns via Twitter. So there's clearly a social media element, and it was used to manipulate people and to disseminate sort of panic propaganda internally of national governments, uh, often against their interests and against their prior policies. And this was done uh, in the UK, and it was done in Germany, and it was done in Italy also. It's very, it's a very interesting, interesting thing. Of course, I think this would never have happened without uh, internet technology. Uh, for one, the Home Office thing would would be even more of an obvious farce than it already is. Uh, you know, we're all in Home Office, and I'm supposed to be working right now. Actually, <laughs> it's a joke. No one does anything anymore. And uh, and uh, but without the internet, you could not even pretend to work. in which this it seems that the internet has encouraged this and social media uh, in in particular uh, it's 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 also I just, just as a final point uh, it's if you consider you mentioned these anecdotes of course you can always with millions of infections you can always find a 40 year old man who's dying or something uh, it's it's always going to be outliers uh, like this uh, but uh, it's very interesting how this was never done with influenza. So influenza also kills a not insignificant number of young people, of children, uh, of of you know professional age men like myself, and and we never think about it. I had you know influenza many times in my life, and, and never never mattered. And and it's it's super. And of course, and, and I even had. I remember you'd even have. You wouldn't even make a special effort to isolate yourself or to avoid infecting others. You just you're sick. You know. Uh, you, you try to manage it and get through. And uh, it's it's super interesting how there was also then a deliberate decision to keep these grim anecdotes out of the media and out of sight. There was a deliberate strategy uh, about influenza that developed after 1918 when seasonal flu became a regular thing for human society. Uh, a strategy that developed that we would allow infections to happen. And uh, Along with that strategy was ignoring that influenza was dangerous, and 
that influenza kills a lot of people. And so we had the opposite approach. And it's it's very interesting uh, just to look back on stories about bad influenza waves. So I don't know about Romania, but here in Germany, uh, 2017 to 18 was very bad. We had almost mortality uh, that winter. It was a very bad uh, flu. It was, an in, it was an, sort of a new reassorted strain, killed a lot of people, and it was just hardly ever reported. And, uh, no one was interested in the anecdotes about children dying, though many children did die, and it was all kept out of the news, and this was also a deliberate strategy. Hmm. That's that's really interesting. Yeah. And, uh, do you think it's, um, yeah, I mean, the, 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 you say it's deliberate, but um, it's, you know, I feel like it's, it's been kind of a recent thing where people just uh, glom onto anecdotes and, and, and blow them up. It feels like we haven't really had this. And, you know, like we said, like 2017, it wasn't really as bad as it is now, like where, you know, something happens and, and that turns into a world event. Um, I don't know. It's, uh, it's, uh, for me, it's always hard to, to ascribe coordination to these things, but yeah, I mean, it, these these are like significant death numbers and influenza also uh you know does does attack younger cohorts as well so yeah it it is pretty striking like the difference between how how that's interpreted and and coronavirus is interpreted you know a lot of people say that you know it's it's the boomers last gasp because they're all being uh, you know attacked by this very specific boomer targeted uh uh, virus and that uh, that's why you know the the whole world convulses <laughs> but yeah I, I don't know what to make of that but yeah it's a it's a it is very strange that there's this difference i think that's uh some I, of course i don't think you know the press gathers together in secret international meetings to coordinate coverage internationally i think there are however However, more I've learned, I think, especially observing Corona coverage, there's more coordination in in press coverage than I, I presumed uh, that I had assumed before. And maybe that's maybe mostly Germany, where uh, a lot of Germans don't know, but our media here uh, is very dominated by state media organizations. So there are and also subventions to many newspapers and so forth. Uh, it's all funded by the government. So we have very large state media uh, in Germany and it's the most influential. And that's very, very coordinated, actually. Uh, so they, there's no, your news is not as independent from political uh, happenings or from uh, policies and so forth as it is in many other countries. So, so there is a lot of coordination in German media, but I've been also convinced by the last year that there is more coordination than you would think, uh, even internationally and, and with international media. And, uh, and that the, uh, if there are conspiracies anywhere, it's at the level of messaging and uh, media operations, which are often very interesting how they are coordinated and they're always on the same note within 24 hours. Uh, I really do think there was a deliberate strategy with influenza to try to play down uh, uh, the negative consequences because uh, there it had been proven there was no there was no way to mitigate influenza. Uh, the vaccines against influenza don't work really. Uh, it's a sort of dirty secret of flu vaccines; they, they're a total failure. Uh, they, 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 they're even they're better than perhaps Corona vaccines. They don't work so much that they don't even subject influenza to evolutionary pressure they're completely worthless uh so it's it's much better uh but there, there was uh i think 
initially in the 20s and 30s, a consensus developed that you had to let especially children get sick with influenza. Uh, and that would, uh, even though some children die, you had to allow this to happen. That was the only kind of way to to mitigate uh, broader mortality. So that as you get older, you have this lingering immunity to these flu strains. And so there's always this, this we try to let people get flu. And that's that's a, a, big, part of, a big part of why uh, the media looks the other way all the time, even though many countries post serious uh, flu uh, influenza fatalities in the winter. Uh, yeah, that's all I would say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's uh, yeah, it's 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 just you know, a, a, a shocking to see that uh, you know there's there's absolutely no 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 rationality between like behind all of this. You know, there's a there's always a veil of you know where we're for the the homo economicus and people are, are acting on on rational bases. But yeah, this is this just doesn't doesn't make any sense. I mean, just a, the outsized reaction is uh, is crazy. Um, but be- before um, I let you go, I want to ask you two more questions. I want to ask you, is there any kind of white pill in your in your discoveries? Is there anything that makes you hopeful, any sort of piece of data or, or information that you think might be interesting? Because this is a very black pilling episode, obviously. <laughs> you know, it seems like we're we're on rails towards a towards a, a dark future. But is there um yeah, anything that makes you think, yeah, this this might be a hopeful direction? <laughs> To black pill, I'm always accused of of, of over white pilling on my Twitter account. I think I think um, the biggest the biggest white pill for me in, in the last uh, two or three months is uh, the degree to which it's very obvious that uh, leadership in, in not only Germany but in much of Europe has repudiated uh, lockdown strategies against Corona. The modelers have totally disappeared. Uh, there's I'm not saying we won't lock down again, you know, Alex, I believe you're right, that they, they won't ever be able to put this policy away. But the elites understood what we also understood, that these are terrible policies and they want everything to avoid them. And uh, a, a big part of their vaccination insanity is they just don't want to have to lock down again. And these are these are people who have limited information about what's happening and they're desperate to survive this politically, and they are hoping that by forcing uh, higher levels of vaccination, they can achieve better outcomes and won't have to lock down again. And uh, the most white-pilling thing for me is the degree to which this whole strategy implies uh, that the, the political elite especially despises the models, scientific advisors, everyone, the virologists, odious virologists, all these losers, that they're, they're, they're massively hated, not only by us, but also by, by bureaucrats and people in power. The health establishment has, has, is in the middle of burning itself down. And I, I really believe that uh, going forward, things are dark, but there's, there's growing desire to on the parts of many, many different parts of our bureaucracies and our political leadership uh, to free themselves from these absolute losers and try to develop more rational policies. And again, these people are really stupid and it's going to take them a long time to find a way out. But but there's at least many, many clues and, and, and suggestions that they, they are totally repudiating these policies. 
And uh, of course, that's not enough. It doesn't mean it's lockdown's end. Uh, there's there's a lot of media pressure. There's a lot of popular pressure in favor of them. There's a lot of momentum and inertia uh, that has to be shut down. But in the meantime, this understanding that these were huge errors and that they have to be avoided in the future is growing. And I think that's, that's very clear. And I think also we can hope the same thing will happen for the vaccines. Uh, in the future, I think a lot of these mandates would be repudiated and uh, would be increasingly avoided because they're not working. And uh, so one of the things I always talk about uh, is, is how containment is uh, very counterproductive for especially elected politicians. So I'm very anti-democratic, but it's, it's convenient that, that we're stuck with containment in democratic countries because uh, with media hysteria, you develop a huge organic demand, grassroots demand for containment. And politicians like our odious Mark Zerda, the governor of Bavaria, play to this as populists, uh, taking a hard line on containment. And for a time, they can become popular by locking down and by making everyone wear 12 masks and vaccinate or whatever, but they can never kill corona. And that's all the constituency wants. So they, they end up these really awkward positions where they're courting a constituency that hates them uh, because they haven't killed the disease. And if you go and look at Zerda, if you look at his comment section on Twitter, every post this loser makes, there's thousands of people who are these vaccination corona hysterics, 50-year-old German women who live in Oberbayern who are so mad that he hasn't killed it yet. And uh, and they're even madder at him than I am, you know, and, and it's it's a losing position, and uh, I, at the end of the day, we would win just because of that, because because the containment policies, you can't ever contain the virus, and they're not going to win. And uh, the best thing to do is to draw attention away from it and to wind it down. And uh, that's the only way to succeed as a politician in Western democracies with corona. It's just going to take them a long time to do this. Yeah, to roll it back. But just looking at how fast the narrative can change, you know, there's there's a, a lot of hope in that, you know, because we've we've had quite huge shifts in the narrative of be they top down or bottom up or emergent or whichever way, but they they the narrative shifted a lot. So yeah, that that sounds pretty hopeful. Uh I hope I hope that, you know, lockdowns will will be winding down because yeah, they they're still very much on the table here and they're they're, you know, I think we have a curfew now to be honest. I have been ignoring coronavirus restrictions, except for I wear a mask in the store because I don't want to, you know, create problems for the people in the store. But yeah, I'm not wearing them on the street, though they're mandatory and I'm not uh, following curfew because it's nuts and I don't even know how they're going to enforce that. But anyway, moving on to the last question, which is a question of the show, which I ask everyone. Um, is there a subversive thinker, writer, someone who's been influential um, on, on your thinking that you think that um, people should read more of or, or look into? Uh, there are many thinkers I could recommend, but uh, on this podcast, I would recommend uh, my friend Martin Lichtmesh, because uh, he writes for uh, the, the Operation at Schnellroder. Sensation der, Sensation im Netz, der German dissident, uh, right wing 
uh, right wing maybe uh, nationalist uh, operation, but he's an Austrian, and uh, he's I've written for years, and uh, since I've you know gained some attention on Twitter, we've since I. I would uh, recommend maybe you interview him at some point. Uh, it's fine to interview in English. His English very good, and, uh, and he'd be interesting. Uh, he's uh, he's 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 uh, sort of uh, one of the most interesting thinkers in the German uh, or the European even new right. So uh, you know the Nouvelle Droite also is the sort of French post-war attempt to reimagine what the kind of post-war post-fascism kind of right wing would look like in, in Europe and uh, for me this message is very interesting so I'd yeah. okay so is it, this is um, Martin Rader or Lichtmesh uh, is his name L-I-C like Licht like light E-M speaking German the M-E-S okay said yeah Okay. Okay. That that's that's good. I don't know why what I heard before, but yeah. Sorry. So, so I, I know the distortion is terrible. I also I can't hear how I'm sounding, so it's very very bizarre for me. I'm sorry. No, no worries, no worries. It's uh, yeah, the distortion's always a little bit of a tricky thing. You know, it's um, uh, it it varies a little bit. We'll we'll try to 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 patch it up. I think it's you're pretty much. You, I, we can understand ninety nine percent of what you said, so I think that's good enough for for power. Sorry, sorry. <laughs> no worries. It, it it happens. I mean, I think all, all of our um, chats recently that have been with uh, distortion, there's always a little bit of leakage. It's just it's just not a perfect system. Um, I've got the soundboard now where I could apparently distort people live but one i don't know how to use it and two people would have to trust me with their voice docs quite a bit hard so i don't know if that's gonna happen anytime soon but yeah for the for, for the time being we're we're gonna ride with this with these voice mods uh because i think it's it's definitely useful uh and and yeah awesome to be able to to chat to to people who typically don't necessarily have a voice though you now have a voice actually uh and that leads me to uh to your podcast and your Substack. tell me a bit about that so i i didn't uh really have great plans for either uh for it's, it's sort of hard to describe i was uh I, you develop internet persona uh personas and this is of course a long line i've had many accounts before and your band or whatever and you try again and uh inside so they give you accounts and and uh i don't know you i was very very shy uh about speaking and having my voice heard uh but it's uh it's i also understood after uh bronze age pervert was banned that you want to uh expand your reach across different media and platforms because it's going to happen to me soon you know but and I, i don't doubt i'll be banned from twitter maybe next month or or next year uh as i get more followers it's more dangerous and uh, so it will happen so i wanted to experiment with with audio and uh, also blogging which is how i started under different identities as well so i never had any any reach like i have now no one cared about what i wrote before uh but i i i had originally uh this idea i would have a substack And I'd write about uh, matters of uh, that are of interest to me professionally, but I can't do that anymore because I have the readership and uh, people know who I am. <laughs> I write about the uh, historical topics I'm interested in, so I, I I can't do that. So it has to be, I guess, about about 
on and so forth. Uh, maybe a, a sort of side interest of mine where few will recognize me is, is witchcraft and uh, and understandings of magic in the later Middle Ages and, and early modern period. Uh, it's sort of a hobby of mine. It's not my official field and I've never published there. So I think it's safe if I, if I write about it. Uh, uh, so maybe I'll have some Substack essays on, on these topics as well. Uh, and as for the audio, yeah, I tried it. You know, a lot of people don't like this distortion. It's very brave of you to uh, to, to host me. Uh, I'm not sure how often I do it because uh, it irritates me when people complain about the, the way it sounds. Uh, the, the the truth is, I can't I can't uh, I can't appear undisguised on the uh, internet with my voice because there are a lot of videos uh, of me speaking at lectures and so forth where I can be recognized and it'd be trivial to identify me. And uh, so it's it's a little bit it's a little bit dangerous, but I think the distortion I've 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 shopped it around to some friends and not said it was me and asked them well, who do you think this is and they didn't recognize it so I think it's safe. Uh, it's it's uh yeah so I'm sorry about that. Uh, it's uh, but I hope I think with the podcast uh, maybe I do it once a month. It's very hard for me. It's a lot of energy to speak, uh, to speak like this under my pseudonym, which I'm not used to doing. And uh, and so I think maybe once a month, and I'll try to. Uh, uh, I don't know. I I would like I would like the podcast ideally to be about something that isn't Corona. I want to not talk about this so much. Uh, to, to be honest, you know, I, I sort of hate it. I hate the virus, and I want it to go away. And and it's it's not something. That is inherently interesting to me. Uh, the interesting things are deceptions surrounding it and so forth. But the virus itself is not very interesting. And uh, and so I, I would like to to develop a if if I have a leadership uh, to 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 cultivate a leadership that is is not just interested in this this thing uh, that would be interested in my thoughts on other matters too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And you know, hopefully, hopefully the virus is not going to be, you know, this, the main theme of our lives forever so that you can, you know, <laughs> calmly leave, leave behind this theme because yeah, you have a lot of very interesting stuff to say about it. I'm very happy that you are interested in it and, uh, and all the research you've done on, on the topic, but yeah, man, I'm, this is the one thing I really want to leave behind. It's been, it's, we've had enough of this. Um, yeah, but um, I want to thank you for for coming on. I want people to uh, follow you on Twitter. It's I think a Eugipius one. Uh, I'll put the link in the in the show notes and also uh, sign up for your Substack, which is I think Eugipius at no, substack dot Yes, that's all correct. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's great honor to appear on your podcast, Alex. Oh, I'm I'm very happy you came on. Uh, yeah, well, I I'll see you on the interwebs. See you soon. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you 